Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 395, and my guest is Gary M. Bettman. Gary tells the story of his father-in-law, who was a guard during the Nuremberg trials and had a unique interaction with those on trial. Gary tells this wild story and uh, the artifact that comes from that story. It's really interesting. A one-of-a-kind artifact, I should say. Gary's a film and TV producer and executive producer. His hit show, Northbound, is currently on Sika TV. And some of his previous productions include The Omega Code, Waxwork, and the film A Gun, A Car, A Blonde. He's the COO of marketing advertising company, The Miller Group, and has spent the last few decades as a democratic political consultant. Really interesting guy, and I met him through my dear friend, John Penny, and uh, Gary was kind enough to say yes when I asked him to be on the show, and in a couple weeks, his father is also going to be on the show. Really fascinating story there, too, with his father. So, all right, check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media and find my music on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, wherever you get your music. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, including iHeart. It's back up on iHeart. And thank you for listening. Be well, be kind, be love, and go see the movie Zone of Interest. Don't get paid to say that, but holy moly, just saw it, and it is an incredible film. Breathtaking, actually. Uh, sat there stunned at the end of it. Really, definitely a theater movie, so go go see it if you haven't already. All right, uh, let's get into this. Here we go. Gary Batman, welcome to Hey Human. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. It's nice to see you. It's always good to see you again, too. We uh, were introduced by our mutual friend, John. So thank you, John. John's <laughs> great and, and a good friend indeed for both of us. Yeah. Y'all are neighbors, aren't you? We are almost, I would say, less than a minute walking distance. That's nice. A few homes away. John, John and Kathy are terrific people. They really are. They're lovely. Let's get into today we're going to cover a couple different things you have an extraordinary story about your father-in-law and after we're done talking about that we're going to talk about you because your life is also fascinating and has an arc that i'm absolutely want to hear about so let's start with your father-in-law a little backstory and then getting into what we're here to talk about my father-in-law his name was danny miller and he was living with his daughter and he lived in Cleveland at the time and we made a an initial visit in the early 90s to meet the family he i mean after all the meals and conversation he heard that i was very interested in history political history military history overall and he goes to a, a drawer and pulls out this book and he said i think this would be of interest to you and I mean, Renee was there, my wife, my, not my wife then, my girlfriend at the time, and she didn't even remember this was in the house. And what this book is, is just fascinating. So the book was in a brown bag, paper bag, 
And inside, so a little backstory for, for my father-in-law, who's de been deceased for a number of years, but right out of high school, as an 18-year-old, this was World War II, 1944, and he gets drafted. I mean, he goes right in after high school, does his basic training, and goes overseas. I mean, he went to the, obviously, the European theater. And he was very, very, how many more varies, uh, quiet about the campaigns that he saw. I don't know if he caught the tail end of the Battle of the Bulge or more in early 45. He wouldn't talk about much of anything, really, truly. But afterwards, the war ends, you know, May, and he still has his tour of duty um, to fulfill. And he gets assigned to the Nuremberg trials. Now, he was a private. So, I mean, if you know that in, was it 1935, the Nuremberg laws that the Nazis passed, which were extremely onerous uh, for Jews, and one of the reasons that Nuremberg was selected for the famous Nuremberg trials was because it tied in to Nuremberg the Nuremberg Laws. It was sort of like going full circle to have these Nazis tried because the Nuremberg Laws were, were passed there. And I guess it, you know, the city, like most German cities, were in shambles, but there was enough operable to have the British, the Americans, the French, all there to, with their lawyers, to conduct what was going to be a very, very long, extensive trial. So my father in law ends up being assigned and here's where we get deeper into the story if you've seen pictures of nuremberg which people who know history or world war ii history know that you see mostly the courtroom and inside the courtroom all the nazi defendants were seated mostly with their headphones on for the translation but some of them actually spoke a fair amount of english um, and you see the judges and you see the lawyers and all that and then on the back row there were the white helmeted MPs, all spiffy looking with their MPs. That was not Danny. He was not an MP. He was not, he was just a private, you know, the basic, what we sometimes they call the grunt, you know, that's more a Vietnam term, I think. But his job, as he told it, now it's interesting because he would talk a lot about this part, as quiet as he was about the military in battle exploits. That's how, flip that around, and that's how talkative he was about this. So he would escort whatever particular Nazi he was assigned to from their jail cell through the bowels of the building to the front door of the courtroom, the very big courtroom. And then from that point, the MPs, which I always love, because you can always look at a picture, you see they have those white helmets, it's kind of cool looking. They would take it from there. So Danny was never in the courtroom per se. But somehow, and this is just amazing because as I got to know him, of course, later in his life, he was kind of a quiet guy. He wasn't verbose or outspoken, timid in some ways, not one to get involved or certainly not a rabble rouser, none of these things. But at this point, as an 18, but at this point, I guess a 19-year-old private in the Army, he decided to do something which, to my research, 
and I've done a bit of research on this, has not been done when no one did it. So in the United States Army privately printed a book, a nice-sized book, hardcover, in Nuremberg, um, about the proceedings. It's about the size uh, of a small coffee table book uh, with pictures of Nuremberg, but really all about the proceedings, the defendants, the judges. And it's a nicely printed book. So he gets one of these books and he basically smuggles it in because you, you're, the idea is you can't get too friendly with any Nazi. They didn't want you to because there was always the concern, if you know what ended up with Hermann Goring at the end, that's a well-documented story, that someone, the, the day before his execution, some American soldier smuggled in a cyanide or a capsule so Hermann Goring could die in his pajamas, in his sleep, on his own time, and not with a noose around his neck. I think ultimately they figured out it was uh, an officer or someone who was sympathetic, obviously. But they didn't want any American soldier to get too friendly with any of the Nazis. So as Danny tells the story, the, the soldiers would, who were escorting the Nazi from the jail cell to the courtroom door, they would be rotated. And so you, you would, like for a week, you would have Hermann Goring, and then you would go to Speer, and then you would go to Dernitz, and then you would go, so that you didn't bond any that deeply. So what I'm saying with this book, he decides, and this is just, I don't know where this comes from, he decides to smuggle in this book, because you can't just walk in with a book if you're a GI, you have to hide it under your uniform, your coat, whatever. And he wants to get the autographs of every single Nazi defendant. Now, mind you, Danny is Jewish and comes from a moderately religious Jewish household. I believe, from what he said, that he started with Hermann Goring because he was figuratively and literally the big man in the room. So if Hermann signs, then he figures everyone else can sign, will sign. And as you see, and Herman signed, obviously, that's why we're, one reason we're talking. Um, and Herman signed in a very Jan, John Hancock sort of a way with a flourish and it's big and top of the page, you know. And then in the subsequent weeks and weeks, Danny went to each Nazi. Most of them signed on the page below Goring. Uh, a couple or a few more signed on an adjacent page, but his goal was to get every single Nazi. And I, I'm pretty sure that was it Speer who spoke English, and he, he said that he told them that he was Jewish and they just wanted to sign the book. Why did they want to sign it? Who knows? I mean, was it, did most of them think death was imminent or whatever, and they were just, this was something to immortalize them by signing this book. Who can say? Probably not. Yeah, I, I don't know. But eventually they did it. Danny, and the, he, not only did he get that very nice book, but there was also uh, pamphlets that the, the trial of proceedings had. And, and he kept, and it's in remarkably, almost perfect condition, 
this pamphlet from 1945. So they knew he was Jewish yes. and they still did it. That's yeah. pretty interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they all did it. And he comes home from the war and goes on with his life, whatever. And he, who knows how the war, the battle part of the war scarred him. If, he, if guys don't talk, you never know. You never know. And that was it. And then you segue from the mid-40s to the early 90s, and this book in a brown paper bag comes out, and it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And at one point when he was showing it to me, he started to actually touch. And I go, no, Danny, don't, don't touch the ink, the, you know, because you don't want it just for preservation sake. But the, the signatures hadn't faded because they hadn't been in the sunlight and they hadn't seen anything. They were in a bag for decades. So, you know, that started some research from my end to see, to see if anything like that existed and what it might be worth. And I called around a bunch of people. As uh, I'm a book collector, um, books are my passion, so I know some of these antiquarian book dealers coast to coast. I called them, um, guys who deal in uh, military collections and uh, through another friend of mine who connected me with some. So I, I made a bunch of calls to see how unique this really was. And there, there were a couple of other guys who got Goring's autograph. So you can still find that around. And a few of the other higher profile Nazis, Dernitz, like I mentioned, Speer, but there was no anywhere the, a case where this privately printed book by the United States military had all the autographs. So it seems like a truly one of a kind. Now, um, I won't get into numbers, but assessing value was challenging because like Sotheby's, Christie's, they don't handle anything that has anything to do with Nazis. So they were not even interested in seeing it, talking about it. The minute I said what it was, they say, thank you, goodbye. But there were a couple of private dealers back east, uh, one in particular, a Jewish guy in Connecticut, who was enthralled with it. He goes, oh my God, this is amazing. I've never heard of this book, anything like this book before. And so I, t I talked to him, but I mean, the book right now sits in a bank safe deposit box down in Culver City. So it's, it's you know, it's, it couldn't be more secure uh, if we tried. And we're not, it's not, it's not my father. So Renee's dad, and we're not selling, there are other siblings. So there was a discussion about possibly uh, putting on maybe like a permanent loan to the Simon Wiesenthal Center to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., which is an amazing museum. Uh, I urge everyone, if they're in D.C., to go there. There's even another museum, smaller, in L.A., called the Museum of the Holocaust, near the Grove. Do you know that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, you know, there, there are people who probably, uh, museums, who would probably be interested in this as a display item, as a discussion coming from a, a Jewish GI. Um, but right now, it, it's these are all discussions because it's, uh, you know, siblings have to agree on what to do and you know how, how that can go.
is it just is it priceless? No, it's not. I mean, it's just it it has value, but I think I think what I would prefer is that in in Danny's name, it goes on display at one of those museums I mentioned because that's a tribute to Danny Miller, and to me that's that has more oomph and the uniqueness of it with a little backstory, you know, but it's not priceless, no. And you, you know, you have to also wonder if someone like this collector in Connecticut who was willing to purchase it, who, who wants this, who's going to spend X thousands of dollars and want this in their home? Is that, so isn't it better to have it at the Wiesenthal Center or in Washington and say, you know, but it's certainly unique. And um, uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of just the most remarkable story. And even the book itself, he actually, besides the pamphlet, which I mentioned, there's also a second copy of the book that he, for some reason, he, he bought two copies, one, I guess, to keep, which is in like immaculate condition, and the one that the Nazis signed, which got a little wear and tear because it was being handed back and forth and obviously stuck in his clothes to get there. But the book itself is, is a, a nice treat also, just a, about the proceedings. You know? I feel like that definitely deserves museum to, to live on in a museum for a lot of reasons. It's a lot, for a lot of layers of reasons. Yeah. I mean, they, they could do a nice display on it. Um, they, they would have to figure out, I guess the page that Goering is on with the most signatures would be the one if you opened it up on display, because to get to a couple of other signatures, you'd have to turn the page. So they'd have to figure out how to display it. But, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's, it's remarkable to know that my father-in-law had this interaction with Hermann Goring, who, you know, I, hierarchically after Hitler, you probably would have Goebbels, Himmler, and Goring as the big three right underneath Hitler. So, I mean, it's like, this is my relatively timid, but not that timid at the time, father-in-law talking to Hermann Goring, who, you know, everyone who knows history, and, and, and her, Goring, not only World War II history, but I'm also a student of World War I history, and Goring was an accomplished fighter pilot uh, and flew with Baron von Richthofen, the Red Baron. And so Goring didn't just come into being in World War II. I mean, he was already making a name for himself in World War I. He was actually the after von Richthofen was shot down uh, April 21st of 1918, the leader of a squadron was another pilot who was subsequently shot down, and then Goering ultimately took over the von Richthofen's squadron and finished the war. He was even ballsy back then. I mean, he painted, von Richthofen, the Red Baron, was known because he painted his plane mostly all red, he had different planes, but he generally they were almost all red. And Goring, who was even flamboyant at the time with a walking stick and all that, he painted his plane all white, which was you know a different sort of approach. So 
this is a man uh, from two world wars of significant historical status. And my father-in-law was like chatting with him. So, I mean, it's like, it's crazy. It's amazing. So I'm just so curious to think about what their take, these Nazis take on this young Jewish private roaming the halls, trying to get signatures like a school, school book, like an um, annual. Exactly. I mean, it had that feel to it. Like, have a nice summer. See you in hell. Kind right. Of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What we, we did when we were kids getting the, the autographs. And so, and they were just autographs. I mean, one person asked me, did anyone write a salutation or anything? No, 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 no. It wasn't that. It was just sign your name and thank you very much. Fascinating. Yeah. So, and, you know, like I said, I, I there's, uh, I printed out this list. There's, Keitel was in there, von Ribbentrop. I mean, people who know Hess, Dernitz, von Papen. These are all guys, if you look into their sordid, clearly their sordid past, were important enough in the, the Nazi structure, the killing apparatus, to be on trial at Nuremberg. I mean, let's, and, and uh, they were not all executed. Some were given different levels of sentences. They were not all executed. Many were, but not all. It made, it made me want to go back, which I did, and watch film, you know, thing. Try. There was the, I think it was Stanley Kramer, I'm not sure, the famous movie that came out in the early 60s about Nuremberg, big feature film. But I went just more for the historical record, you know, on YouTube and stuff, and just looked at um, the proceedings. And, and, and they, they went on for a very long time. So that's the story about the Nuremberg book, and it's... So much. It's, it's a wild ride, that one. Yeah. No, it really is. And, and the, the rare occasion I take it out of the, the bank security box and show it to people, everyone is like, you know, living history, you know, not unlike when we first met at Russ's house, where we looking at some of his artifacts, which are yeah. amazing. I mean, that's beyond what he has is a collection for the ages, but this particular book, it, it's a, it's a real link to a generation, a part of history that, I mean, most of these guys, Danny would be 90, eight now or something like that if he were alive and yet sadly when we're talking about nazis and stuff like that it's not gone i mean these guys are long gone but what they created it's with us every day sadly isn't it it really is i'm really looking forward to in, in a future episode i'll be interviewing your dad and that's going to be a really incredible conversation, I feel like, as someone who lived the experience of Nazi Germany. Yeah, my dad had it, and we'll be talking to him in a couple of weeks, I guess. But my dad, far more dramatic story than, than Danny. I mean, Danny's was an interesting story, because where did he have the chutzpah to do this? But And it's an amazing artifact. I mean, it's, But, well, my father lived it. My father was there. He'll tell you the story of the time with his grandmother, my great-grandmother, where they encountered a Hitler rally. He'll tell you that story. And he has memories as a very little boy of the 
pervasive fear that he felt instantly with his grandmother picking him up off the street and running in the opposite direction uh, away from Hitler uh, in Berlin. Um, so, yeah, his escape from the Nazis, I mean, he is a little boy, but he has memories. But my grandparents, my great-grandparents, my uncle, who was even younger than my, my dad, you know, it's remarkable because, and I, I, we have other things I guess we're going to talk about today, but at that point, most of the Jews in Germany at, at that point were very secular and were Germans first. And again, many, many thousands of German Jews fought and died for the Kaiser in the First War. So there was a real sense of loyalty to Germany. And so that this all happened from, you know, I mean, it was brewing through the 20s, but obviously in 33 when Hitler took power, 32 when he was running, whatever the dates, we know what happened subsequently. But there was, it was a disbelief on almost all the secular Jews in Germany, and especially in the big cities, that this could happen because we we meaning the, the German Jews fought and died for the country in a war not that long ago. You know, the echoes of World War I, people could argue, helped create World War II. That's a discussion for another time. I've I've been in seminars where some say the Treaty of Versailles and this and that, but either way, the bottom line is that the Jewish population in Berlin and Germany never thought this could happen until it happened. <laughs> yes, that seems to be an echo that resounds throughout history. Right. What's the only history? You're doomed to repeat it. What's that line? The paraphrasing of it is, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. It takes the people, it takes followers to make all this happen. He, he couldn't do it in a vacuum by himself. So, and, and I guess multiple reasons uh, that hatred was obviously bubbling below the surface. Otherwise, I don't know, but I can't imagine if someone, a Hitler-type person at that point in, say, England, wouldn't have happened because it was a different set, you know, different political mindset in England. The, the economics of the country, I mean, if you take people who are disenfranchised, impoverished, hungry, upset, they don't know who to blame for that. And then you have a charismatic figure telling them you can right. blame these people and take the onus off yourself or even the onus off of me, blame all those people. Right. Then they got everyone on board, right? Then you get everybody to, to blow the horn and the whistle and say, yes, if I can blame all of them and make myself feel better for how shitty I feel, then let's do that. Yep, the blame game works, we, we mm -hmm. know. But the, the confluence of events with the depression hitting worldwide yes. in late 29 <clears throat> added to it. And like I said a minute ago, you, you can't escape the, the defeat that Germany went through. They, they tried to not even p package it as a defeat. They, you know, Germany had to, on November 11th of 1918, actually, I guess it was the night of the 10th into the 11th, they surrendered in this rail car to the French and British. And that rail car that basically humiliated the Germans in 1918, that same rail car Hitler found 
and had the French sign their defeat in that same rail car with, you know, so Hitler, you didn't forget what happened in the first war or the great war as it was called at that time, because there was no second war yet. But yeah, I think all the confluence of these events, the depression, but Chamber uh, and Chamberlain didn't take him seriously. I think that no, that was a big mistake. <laughs> you know, a big, big mistake. And so it, you know, it was just the I mean, I hate to use the word perfect storm, but it, it in some ways it 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 was. What can we say? And we could talk about that for forever. But there's there's no there's no doubt that you know he if you look back at the last century, uh, Hitler would have to be one of the most dominant, preeminent figures of that whole century. I would guess, right? I mean, you could make a short list of other people, but he he'd be up there. Rwanda. I mean, yeah. and watch that fantastic movie starring Don Cheadle. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's, well, Killing Fields, very good movie, but based on a true story. And, and the guy, Hang Noor, who was playing Dith Pran, ends up, um, he went through it himself. He wrote a, wrote a book that I read many years ago. And it had such a sad ending in real life because he moves to L.A. I mean, he did this movie with Sam Waterston and John Malkovich and a bunch of others, a really good movie. He was murdered over a wristwatch uh, many years ago. Uh, and so he survives the killing fields. He portrays Dith Pran. He gets these accolades. He has this all new life. And then over, he's murdered over a watch or something. Uh, I mean, a real tragedy, but sure. Genocide, it's, it's far from new and and each time it comes up what do people do do they turn away do they try to help a little bit you know what what did we do what did the west do in cambodia at that time right I mean, exactly many many years ago i read this comprehensive biography on hitler uh, i think his name was john toland really very good uh, author and he spent some time in there talking about the Armenian genocide in the mm -hmm. first war and how the West didn't do much. We were fighting the war and this and that. And, you know, they, they didn't really were concerned about it. The other things were more important. And I think there was a, a small, small part in Hitler's demented mind that said, we killed... The numbers vary because it was 1915, but 800,000 or so Armenians, and no one seemed to care. The Turks got away with it. So I can do that to the Jews. The, I mean, but what Hitler did is took it to heights way beyond the Armenian genocide, beyond Rwanda, beyond anything we've ever seen. And what a lot of people forget is that it wasn't just Jews that were exterminated. Um, I, I know that out there the ethos is that it was a Jewish Holocaust. Yes, it clearly was, six million. That's, but there were roughly another five million, whether you were homosexual, whether you were uh, had Catholics, intellectuals, disabilities, dissidents, writers, yep, actors, artists. Right. So that's another roughly 5 million more. These are numbers that are just staggering. 
uh, when when you think about it, right? His place in in history is he's a Hall of Famer in hell. Yeah, sadly, yeah, sadly inescapable. I mean, we I don't know, but anyway. So that's the that's sort of the overall with with Danny Miller and yeah. Well, let's uh, get into you. You have led a fascinating life thus far. You know, I always had major interests as a kid, and one of them was I loved the movies and watched a lot of TV. The movies held a special place for me. I always did. Grew up with my family, being from New York. We went to Broadway shows, all the classic shows of the 60s and 70s that you know were legendary, and there was just something so magical about the entertainment business, about theater, of course, but especially movies, and it kind of was all I ever wanted to do. I didn't even know. I mean, I'm a you know a young kid, and I just they didn't have any film programs in high school. But I did the local theater, and you know, sort of found my niche uh, as a producer director, but much more so as a producer, and went to film TV school where I was a major, and did that, and graduated from small school upstate New York called Ithaca College, where I had the privilege of meeting Rod Serling, who was like, uh, I think the Twilight Zone is one of the, you talk about most influential people in history, I think the Twilight Zone is one of the top, I don't know, top 20 TV shows ever. The fact that he started it in 59 and ended it in what, 64? And people still talk about certain Twilight Zone episodes. Oh, the Burgess Meredith one. Oh, the William Shatner one. Oh, my, you know, and so on and so on. It was a great show. It was a great honor to meet him. He was from upstate New York. He taught classes at Ithaca College. He was very involved in bringing our television studio into the modern age. He was a terrific man who sadly died very young. He was a heavy smoker. I mean, like, I don't know, two, three packs a day, and just a brilliant man. And I was a privilege to just shake his hand and call him Mr. Sherling. And I wish, obviously, I wish he had lived a long, happy, healthy life. But if he had just lived a few more years, instead of being a sophomore meeting him, I would have had him as a a senior where I had even more interaction. But he, uh, he helped our school immensely. The business to me was like sort of all I wanted to do. And I did a lot of stuff at Ithaca, films and all that. But it was really, uh, you know, get into the the business as soon as I graduated. Um, Concurrently, I always had a political involvement uh, because I came from a somewhat political family. You know, Kennedy was, President Kennedy was revered uh, in my family and um, you know, I know a lot of people from my grandparents' generation felt that same way about FDR. So I had that sort of imbued in me too. And there was even a story about my on my mother's side about her grandmother, my great grandmother, marching to get the rights for women to vote. You know, before women didn't get the vote till 1920, and she was marching before the war to get. You know, and I think actually the war accelerated women getting the vote all over the world. Because if you look at the countries when women got the vote, I think well, well, the Great War hel- helped that. But I had that sense of like, you know, 
pride that someone in my family was actually marching to get women. The, and it's, isn't it incomprehensible that women couldn't vote till 1920? Think about that. That's they nuts. Couldn't own, they couldn't have their own credit cards in the 80s. <laughs> that, that's beyond nuts. I mean, it's <laughs> like there's a, a really good movie with Carrie Mulligan who could do no wrong called Suffragette. And I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't, but I love her. Oh, she's fantastic. Meryl Streep has a small, basically an extended cameo in it. But it, it, it really talks, because the suffragette movement, which I learned a lot about because of my great-grandmother, but just in, the importance of it wasn't yes. just in America by any stretch. The suffragette movement was in Europe. and I mean, it was all over. My um, great-grandmother was a suffragette. See? So that, I'm sure you're incredibly proud of that. Pretty badass. She was a badass. And was she out there with a placard marching? See, that's great. Oh yes, very politically inclined. Very married to an officer in the military, so they would host big parties, and and she would flap her gums. <laughs> she was not afraid of confrontation or speaking her mind. Uh, she wrote news articles. She was badass. That's great, right? Yeah. Did you have a chance to meet her? And get I, to no, her? no, no, no. She passed long before I ever was a twinkle in the eye, as they say. Well, but you have those photo photos. I have I have photographs of her in my apartment uh, because, of, as I do, of all the really strong women, independent women in my family, on my, on my mother's side, on my father's side, only a few people survived World War II. So I need to interview you so you can tell your father's story. I've interviewed dad a few, a couple times for the show and my mom. Uh, they are great interviews. And I say this on a lot of different episodes. If you have the opportunity to interview your parents, your grandparents, your great uncles, whatever it is, your neighbors who are above a certain age, please do it. You, they hold in their hands and in their minds and in their their stories stuff that we're going to lose if it's not recorded. So to that point, Susan, I a hundred percent agree with you. And what I did at Ithaca, besides being a film TV major, is that I ended up being a history minor, and part of the prerequisite. So this is 1976. I did it an exhaustive uh, family history paper interview because my grandparents were still alive and I had a chance to sit down and talk with them on both sides. And I got it all on paper and even went back uh, just about a decade ago, I had the paper and sat again with my mom and dad. Of course, my grandparents are long gone at this point. But I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. But sitting, especially with my grandmother, my the one who escaped from the Nazis, and what that was all like, and some of that we'll talk more in a couple of weeks with my father. But I mean, this was, you know, a woman who at any point could have been killed with two young children and and parents and all this thing. And and you know, I, it needed to be put on paper. And so I did that. And talking with my mother's father, who I loved beyond words, I can even get choked up how much I, I still miss my grandfather, talking about 
his family from the 1880s and the pogroms. And the great-grandmother I talked to you about a minute ago, the suffragette, the women must get to vote, she was born in some shtetl, which were kind of figured out somewhere in Poland, Russia, as those borders changed a lot. She had stories of survival, too, through the pogroms that were, were lost. I mean, we know a little bit about the pogroms and what the Cossacks did and all that, but it, that, that's really lost to history, don't you think? I mean, that era? Absolutely. Well, absolutely. She had told a story, and I, I know we've got to get back on track, but she was a little girl when the Cossacks would come in and the marauders would come in, and there in their home behind a bureau was a little crawl space. And the children, when these marauders would come in, the children would be hidden in the crawl space, and the bureau would be closed so they, you couldn't tell so that if they were going to rape and pillage and beat up, it was just the adults that took the brunt of it and the children. So imagine you're five, six, seven years old in a crawl space in, in the dark, listening to your mother, your father, your aunt, your uncle being beaten up because they were Jewish. And then, of course, they would leave and they'd come out of the crawl space and they'd you know, deal with what happened. But the psychological damage that that does to a little girl, little child, whatever, knowing that. And, and their escape ultimately to get to freedom when they, they left. And the irony is that they left the Polish-Russian area. And at that point in the 1880s, they went to Germany for freedom for a small amount of time before, of course, eventually coming to America. And I have my great-grandfather's citizenship papers framed under museum glass in my office from 1898. And, uh, you know, he, that was always something kind of special, that he became a, an American citizen in 1898. That's really incredible that you have that, because so much of that has been lost to time. Oh, totally. I mean, we're losing things to time in the last hundred years or even less, let alone before that. You, know, yeah. you, say, you say pogroms to people and they go, what program? No, not program, pogroms. They're like, ah, okay. But anyway, so po politics was always something that was interesting to me. I, um, I you know, obviously I'm a, a progressive um, and I, I remember before I could even vote, uh, I was in high school and I worked for George McGovern and we got a chance to heckle Richard Nixon at a rally. It's like students from McGovern. And, you know, that was sort of my, my first foray a little bit into politics. And it was fun. And, you know, it was about Vietnam and civil rights and women's rights. And, uh, you know, Earth Day had just, Earth Day was only like, two years before that. And, like, there were things that were important. Um, and so I got involved. And, you know, I mean, obviously the McGovern thing, we kind of knew the handwriting was on the wall, but it was still energetic and it was fun. And, you know, I would, after high school classes, I would run down to the headquarters and do volunteer work. And it was fun. But, you know, the, the business was my front burner thing for sure. And so I get out of school. I end up 
in New York working in the news business for local New York news. Then I got a chance to direct uh, cable network news at a place called Satellite News Channel. And it was great fun. And that it was a, an international cable news 24 hours, even before Turner was truly 24 hours. It was a little ahead of its time. It lasted a year and a half. And then Turner shut it down. He bought us out, shut it down. It was owned by Group W and ABC. But news was interesting and it was live. And I really got to, to direct news in multiple cameras and remotes, and which was going to serve me later in life with a project I ended up doing just a few years ago. But I really wanted to make movies. I mean, that was really the dream. And somehow news thrived and was at its most exciting when it was built around tragedy and horror plane crashes, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, murders, whatever. If it bleeds, it leads. Right. And that's been the mantra for ever and ever. And I didn't necessarily want to do that. I wanted to make movies. So I, it was, in a way, a good thing that Turner shut down the satellite news channel, bought them out, put, put like 430 people out of work overnight. I said, okay, move to L.A. I, I came to L.A. and really started the pursuing of a, a film career or, you know, ended up working uh, a bit as a, an AD, a first AD, which is an interesting position, a means to an end to be, get to be a line producer and producer. Had a, had a fun time in a, a network pilot called Man About Town with Daniel Stern. Well, you probably know Daniel Stern. Yeah. Um, it was a really fun project at MTM, at the height of MTM, when they were doing St. Elsewhere and Hill Street Blues. And we did our sitcom in the Mary Tyler Moore stage. So this is where, talk about women that blazed the trail. Mary Tyler Moore, I mean, she's up there with Carol Burnett and a bunch of others. And I was on that stage. And that, wow, that's just really amazing. And then I just started doing low-budget films as a first, and the, the goal for me, of course, was to not be a first AD for too long, uh, and got a couple PM credits, line producer credits, producer credits, and um, I think on my IMDB page, I've got 20 producer credits and other production credits first, some of my acting credits, I dabbled in that, I got into SAG in 1983, and you know, so L.A. and uh, I miss New York. Uh, my family's there, but L.A. has been home. Career-wise, it's been pretty good. And, you know, I, uh, I did go back for a time to work on the Mondale Ferraro campaign, where I was assigned as a video crew uh, for Geraldine Ferraro's Northeast speeches. We would uh, record them and to shoot B-roll and at that time, everything was like on three-quarter inch. Remember those three-quarter inch machines? You're too young to remember that. It was an, an old system. Anyway, uh, but it came back here, and uh, you know, it's been a progression of movies through the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Had a lot of movies that are near and dear to me. Some not so much. You know, When you start looking at the titles, some actors that I loved working with and some that were real pain in the butt. Who did you love working with? Linda Carter was absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, she, and most people remember her as Wonder Woman, um, but she, she couldn't have been nicer. She even, in fact, said that because of her Wonder Woman fame, that 
when people found out where the where we were filming, mostly it was up in Santa Clarita at that point, but still within the 30 mile zone, people would come and she said, I'm going to have fans show up. And she said, here's what I'd like to do on my time, meaning our lunchtime, not on the film's time, but during her lunch break, she said, let's set up some chairs in a little area where they can sit. I'll take pictures with them. I'll sign autographs and all that. Then I'll ask them to leave, but I won't take away from production's time. Just, you know, and I mean, and Linda was just great. She, she was great with the crew. Also on, on that film, D. Wallace, the mother from E.T., Oh, she's so, I met her at John's house. Right. And so I reconnected with her at John's party too. And yeah. Dee looks at me and I look at her and I'm going over and she says, we worked together 30 years ago. And she gave me a hug and we talked about the film. And Dee's just that. On, on the actor side, a lot of good guys, probably the two I'll mention there is Jason Alexander, who a real mensch. What a guy. I would work with him in a heartbeat on anything. Um, the nicest guy. I mean, it's like just, you know. So we did our film between season two and season three of Seinfeld. So Seinfeld was already on, but it, it hadn't become the explosive hit that I think it became certainly once season three. And the other actor, which I did two films with, in the uh, early 2000s was Michael York. If you look at his credits, they're amazing. I mean, from, he was in, I think, in Cabaret, The Three Musketeers, was it Logan's Run? I have to check. Michael worked all the time. He was a kind of a refined British actor, um, very into Shakespeare. And uh, the two movies I do with him, we film mostly in uh, Europe. And so um, it was fun hanging with him. Michael's a great. Here's a, one quick anecdote about Michael. He wrote a book, which I'm telling this a little backwards. So I kept in touch a little with Michael. We had the occasional lunch but between the first and second movie and a little bit less after the second movie. And then he calls me, and I thought it was just to check in. He said, um, I'm having a book signing at Book Soup. You know, Book Soup. on Yeah, I love Book right? Soup. Great yeah. store. Yeah. Great, great. I, I hope it stays around. I love that store. And he said, I'd like you to come and sit in the front row and join me. I go, sure. What's the book about? He said, well, it's, I need to tell you that you're, you're mentioned all throughout the book. I go, well, Michael, what? He says, well, I chronicled the filming and the making of this film called The Omega Code, which I was a producer on, and he was the star. And I'm thinking, okay, I hope you portrayed me in a good light and all that and not some he goes no no I, I tried to tell it as it happened so i i part of me so i went and i i supported michael and he had a good crowd of book soup and it was really nice and we chatted a bit afterwards and his wife pat york was an accomplished photographer was there but part of me was like if you're going to write a lot about a person shouldn't you have given like that person at least a heads up that you're like scattered throughout my book in as Gary Bettman. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking that I said that to my wife. I said, you know, Michael should have just, and unfortunately one key thing that happened, he got wrong. And now that it's in print, there's no way to correct it. And so it, it was a, a very key moment in pre-production that he attributed something to the wrong person. And it, 
anyway, it, it, but I, you know, what are you going to do? Poor Michael, though, I, I, uh, when he got his um, star on the Walk of Fame, I went down there, got him a bottle of champagne. But the last, I have been, I've lost husband because he has some terrible illness that he survived. And if you, you know, look, research, Google, whatever, Michael York, the, the poor guy went through hell and became partly unrecognizable with this rare illness. And he wrote another book about it. And it's a real tragedy. I mean, he's alive and he's okay. It's a real sad ending. So those were two women, two men, two that I, you know, and there, there's, there's a lot of nice people in the business. There's a lot of pain in the asses too, right? Sure. Just like in any profession. You, you know that, right. For but, sure. Yeah. So anyway, and so I made a lot of movies and had a lot of fun shot in Italy. And I did a couple of films in Israel, did a wonderful film and the entire film start to finish in Puerto Rico. One of my favorites called Undercurrent with a guy named Lorenzo Lamas. Huh, sure. Who made a big splash on some primetime shows. Then he had a syndicated show called Renegade in the 90s. And well, Lorenzo Lamas was the son of Fernando Lamas, who was a, a big, you know, they used to call it, now you can't say it, but they're like a Latin lover type from my parents' generation. So he was born into the business. And I think he was on some show like Falcon Crest or one of those shows, but he, he, he also, after he did the film with me called Undercurrent, I know he had some difficulty with drugs and things that I think he's bound. But at the time, he's, that was a, 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 one of my favorites of the 20. And I think there was a film, I don't think, there was a film called A Gun, A Car, A Blonde that was another one of, if I had to pick like four or five of my favorite, that would be up there with Billy Bob Thornton, who we did this right at the time he had just, right after the time he had done Sling Blade. Remember Sling Blade? Sure do. Put him on the map. And uh, in fact, Billy invited Renee and I to a private screening of Sling Blade at the Raleigh Studios, you know, kind of across from Paramount. He's a and, really interesting human being. I mean, he's yeah. an exceptional writer and actor, yeah. deep thinker. He's talks about when his brother passed away, how that affects him still to this day, obviously. Why wouldn't it? And uh, that is a person I think has many pools of depth. Well, Billy, and he talked to me a lot about this, came from oh, like kind of poverty in Arkansas. And he grew up, uh, he, I think the story was when he was a little boy, he didn't even have plumbing yet. I mean, he was still using an outhouse. So he, he came from, you know, what they used to call hard scrabble life. Remember that term? Like, what does that even mean? But Billy was great for the project. It was a small movie, proud of it. He got us John Ritter, who he, he was friends with. So John, John was uh, in it. That's his soul. Yeah. Billy was very gregarious and hang out with the crew and, John was very reserved. John would come, go to his trailer, never forgot a line, always showed up on time, but he wasn't a hangout sort of a guy. He kind of was, but it was great because we needed some names. Uh, the lead was a, an actor named Jim Metzler, who was wonderful, but he was in One False Move many years ago. He had a small part in LA Confidential, and he's worked a bit, but it was a really interesting story, a two concurrent we shot half in black and white and half in color. 
And the, the Jim, the lead, was a guy racked and dying of cancer. And he was very sick. And he created this alternative world in his mind to escape the, the pain that he was going through. And so the real world was in color and the, the manifested world was in black and white, but it was a tribute to film noir. The black and white was all a noir. And, you know, uh, even our composer, a guy named Harry Manfredini, who I've worked with on a number of films and he's even scored commercials, he's best known for Friday the 13th. I mean, Harry does, you know, you know, that whole, but he created a jazz score, a noir type jazz score and a, a title song that just wonderful. And it, it tells, it tells a good story. And, you know, I'd done a lot of action films and a couple of romantic comedies. And this kind of movie that was telling a parallel story was, was a lot of fun for me as a producer. How did you get involved in working for political campaigns then? I know that you came up as a kid doing stuff, but yeah. that seems like a heavy load of doing the film production. And Unbelievable. And, and there were times, um, so I mean, I, I volunteered, like I said, I worked on the Mondale Ferraro. By the time 88 came around in Dukakis, we knew we had an uphill battle then, but I was able to, the last month and a half, two months, if I wasn't working, I could donate and donate my time because at that point it was volunteer work. Um, but it really, I really got much more involved in, in Clinton 92 and 96. And fortunately I was able to coordinate my workload and my volunteer work. In 2000, I was in Italy for the Gore Lieberman and I didn't come back from filming in Italy, which is, I mean, what a wonderful place to film movies. And I did too there. The Italians are awesome. I mean, I got to know Rome as well as LA or New York. I loved Rome, just fantastic. But I missed virtually the whole campaign. I came back, I was 10 or 11 days before that much contested election. And so Sadly, short of a bumper sticker on my car and a little bit, I, I wasn't able to contribute what I wanted to do for the Gore campaign. Of course, we know what happened there, and it, you could easily say how that was stolen by the Supreme Court by one vote set the stage for what's happened in the subsequent 20-plus years. But there got to a point where I was getting a little older and I loved the volunteer work, and it was really good. But I said, you know, you're older now. It's time to get paid for your work. And so <laughs> I had a, an opportunity to run as a paid person on a limited basis, but run the John Kerry presidential headquarters in Santa Monica, which was a big consortium of clubs. And um, it was a real pivot point for me because I, you know, I believe John Kerry was a good man. He was a hero. He had shrapnel in his body, purple heart, silver star, whatever. You know, he was on those boats and and the other side swift boated him by a, a guy who didn't serve his country, dodged the military, lost by half a million votes before that because Al Gore got half a million votes. So John Kerry seemed like the right man. 
but you know we didn't that didn't work out but for me it was my entree into deeper into politics but it came at a pivot point because i was offered right at that time two films one uh of of vlad the impaler film to be shot in romania and another action picture similar to my, one of my other favorite movies called death ring um, death ring probably would be one of my top three favorite films that i produced um just for the the enjoyment and i'm not saying it's like a classic cinema it was just a hell of a good ride so i turned those two films down because i didn't want to lose the opportunity to work with the democrats and with carrie so the idea at that point of spending two and a half months in romania doing a a vlad it just it didn't so maybe it would have been different if someone said hey you know you're going to paris or you're going to london or or back to Although Romania is beautiful. I've been to Romania. It's, it's gorgeous. Well, this was 04 Romania. Maybe it wasn't quite, were they still earlier in the throes of communism? Maybe they, because my research showed that they were still, at least equipment-wise and crew-wise, still very much a third world country. That was that. Was that. And, you know, so I, I worked, I ran the... Uh, both Obama headquarters, which was an amazing thrill. We had uh, an enormously successful one on 9th and Wilshire, and even more successful one uh, for Obama 12 on the promenade. That was such an incredible time. Unbelievable. And I, I mean, it feels longer ago than it actually was, mm. um, but uh, it was great. I even won a uh, Democrat of the Year award from, for the city of LA for my work on Obama 08. Uh, we had a visit from Valerie Jarrett, President Obama's right-hand advisor, who came to the Obama 12 headquarters. She was wonderful, and she's still working with the Obamas. That was very exciting. Hillary, I, you know, we had Hillary on Montana and Santa Monica. That headquarters, uh, we had people phone banking, text banking, like literally on the streets. And we won't go into, you know, the whole Hillary situation, what happened and all that maybe for another time, I guess. But there's a case where she won by almost 3 million votes. I mean, Gore won by half a million. Hillary won by 3 million. And I hope, though I don't think it's going to happen, that I'm alive to see a one person, one vote in this country. Um, I understand what our forefathers did, why they did it. The true democracy is, true democracy is one person, one vote. And truthfully, if you're a Democrat in Mississippi or you're a Republican in California, and you want you want your vote to be counted. The way our system is now, it, it doesn't matter, and it should matter. I'm very passionate about that because I, I I think if we had true one person one vote democracy, uh, you, you know we wouldn't have had a lot of things. You you could even argue we wouldn't have had 9/11 because Bush was shucking hay in Crawford, not reading reading the presidential briefings properly. It was under his watch that 9-11 happened. He'd been president for eight months. And I think Gore would have been different. The environment certainly would have been different. I think the response to Katrina would have been different. Uh, and we could just go on and on about one person, one vote, and how it would have changed the last 23, 24 years. But that's another conversation. But anyway, so work-wise, I then was working uh, with the Miller Group, my wife's that she company she founded in 1990 and brought a lot of production to the company to the ad agency 
Um, that's why I was in Chicago. We were doing two web television shows for a client of ours, which I directed, which gets back to my news background, directing live multi-camera shows. So I dusted that off, my headsets and all that. So it was fun to be back doing that for the Miller Group. We just finished, literally just finished shooting our third season called Northbound. It's a, a web series that has garnered over a million views. Uh, Northbound, the third season that we're in post on, uh, will be our final season. Uh, we've done well with it. It's on a platform called Sika TV. So I'm the EP of that. And that, that's been a lot of fun. We shoot the whole thing in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Where they stick up their hand and they no, they're up there. That's right. And it's, yeah. um, they, it's really, people think of Michigan and they think of Detroit, of course, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, but the UP is far away from that. I mean, they're actually, when we were flying in talent from New York and LA, we didn't fly them into Detroit. We flew them in usually to Green Bay or Madison because they're a closer drive to Wisconsin and the UP. But that's been a fun project. And we have a, a feature film we want to make based on Northbound called North Star. So we'll see where that goes. And so that's been fun. And, you know, uh, if you look at the Miller Group YouTube page, there's around 200 videos. I think probably 95% of them I either produced or directed and or directed. So that's been fun having my, you know, feeling now in the ad agency world, but still a little bit in the production world and the political world. And so it's a, a multi-hyphenate. Right? Is that the term? Multi-hyphenate? Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of my story. It's a great story. And hopefully, fingers crossed, you keep dipping your toes in the political realm and as we move forward. Well, that's that's the idea. I mean, we're, you know, as we talked a little bit, I am uh, in deep discussion to do some of the same things I did for Hillary, both Obamas, John Kerry for President Biden. So hopefully we'll see what happens. How can people find you if they want, other than the Miller Group, obviously, is a is a place to poke around. But is yeah, there I mean, it's millergroup.com is the agency's website. We do great work. I'm proud of uh, the output. It's a full service ad agency, marketing, production. I mean, you name it, we can do it. LinkedIn, obviously, that's everyone uses LinkedIn. Um, maybe some people overuse it. I don't know. But that's the, the Are resource. you on Instagram or anything? I'm not. I've kept off a lot of the, so I'm not a Facebook guy either. Even though a lot of my high school chums, like, hey, you know, we've got reunions coming up. You should go on Facebook. I go, I don't know. I <laughs> I find, You're not missing anything, trust me. Well, I trust you. And other people would say, oh, you know, but it's okay. You know, I, I, I know what's going on with my high school classmates as much as I really need to know. But you know what it becomes, Susan? Like a bandwidth thing. Every day, there's so much to do. So many people to connect with, speak to, whether it's Miller Group, production, politics, even down to, I've been asked again last night, Kathy was one of them, please rejoin our homeowners association board. I was, uh, I mean, I, I like Kathy so much, but I just can't, I, I can't, I don't have that to be back on the homeowners board, which I served there for a number of years, but it's like, so <laughs> that's a whole other animal, the HOA. Oh, oh my, have you experienced those? <laughs> no, 
know, but I have friends who have, and it's just, it's, it's beyond, it's, it's beyond, beyond. The yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you want to get into a nitpicky world about landscape and light bulbs and, you know, color of paint for the, oh, it's just, you know, another world. And I, I lived that, like I said, for a number of years. And finally I said, I've got other things. I'll attend some meetings, but I said to Kathy, thank you. I know you want me back on the book. I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Gary, I really appreciate your time and your stories. I'm super yeah. excited to talk to your dad in a couple weeks. It's no, thank been- you. I mean, I'm super excited. I know my dad's really pumped about this and I look forward to that, but thank you. I mean, this has been great. You're great at what you do. You make it easy. You make the flow happen. I appreciate that. Appreciate that. And I'm sure we'll see each other, whether it's John and Kathy's or somewhere else soon. I hope so. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's a pretty small world around here, so I'll definitely be seeing you. Thank you for listening, everybody. And Thank you, Gary, again. Thank you, Susan. So much appreciated. We'll see you soon. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye. Bye.